Chapter 4, It's Okay to Be Not Okay What a caterpillar calls the end of the world we call a butterfly, Eckhart Tolle. I was in a storm and the only way out was through it. It will get better, Janet told me. When you stop serving your ego, the universe will help you. But for a while it will be very hard. She wasn't kidding. It was hard. Hard to acknowledge that all that immigration stuff wasn't some story that was behind me. Hard to recognize that it was at the very core of who I was and the pain that I carried. Hard to stay with my feelings for any length of time before the voice in my head started to scream about how pathetic I was. To give me courage, I printed out a passage from one of my favorite authors, Haruki Murakami, and once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what this storm's all about. I carried his words everywhere as if they were proof that I would survive. One day Janet remarked, Your English is amazing. You have no accent at all. Hard to believe you didn't really start speaking English until you were 13. It's one of my proudest achievements, I replied. I told Janet the story of someone who's the boss. With her great American life, pink bedroom, and high-top sneakers with pink shoelaces. I told her about my family's trip to Palos when I was 15, the pink paint job in my bedroom when I was 16, and how the bookshelves had collapsed in front of my teenage friends to my utter mortification. Over time I went deeper, opening up about things I hadn't realized were even a big deal. I'd put my entire refugee experience in a box, with all of its pain and confusion, and tried my hardest to make it something that lived only in my past. But it turned out that all these things were a huge deal. They were as much a part of me now as they were then, perhaps even more because I'd bottled them up for so long. One day I told Janet about one of my most painful memories from the time when we were trying to make our way to America. Before leaving Russia my parents had sent some food ahead, knowing that we wouldn't have money to buy much in the refugee settlement. The tricky part, other than finding enough non-perishable food that didn't taste horrible, was where to send it. We didn't know where we would be living or exactly when we would get there. So my parents, like many others who were fleeing, sent boxes of canned vegetables and fish to a post office in Rome and hoped for the best. Miraculously, when we got to Italy one of the boxes was there. One very hot July day, my father and I traveled the hour into the city to find the post office. My dad carried the heavy box back to the train station, shifting it from one shoulder to the other every few minutes. It was extremely humid and the streets were crowded. I remember seeing sweat pouring from my dad's forehead and glistening on his thick beard. We had brought one small bottle of water with us but he drank from it just once to make sure that I would have enough. I wanted to do something to help, but what could I do? The box was too heavy for me to carry and my dad wouldn't take another sip of water even when I offered it to him. The feeling of not being able to help the people you love is awful. I hated it. I hadn't realized that I was going to tell Janet this story, but the moment I did everything shifted. I mean a huge, seismic kind of shift. A big light went on. I'd grown up believing that love and suffering were inseparable. My dad's strength and his sacrifice that day in Rome was the essence of love. To truly love someone, I believed, you had to suffer for them. You had to not take more than a sip of water on a super hot day so the other person had more to drink. 
or you had to slave over dinner, like my grandmother in Russia had done so often, grinding herself to the brink of collapse. You had to keep your confusion, pain, and fear inside, as I tried to do, so you wouldn't add to the worry your family members already had on their plates. Hiding suffering behind love, when people ask me what was the hardest thing about immigrating to America, two things compete for first place, not knowing English and not being able to rely on my parents to guide me through our new life. You can't do a thing when you don't know the basics of a language. Feeling idiotic and confused was tough for all of us. For a time, we were completely lost, and my parents were as lost as I was. In America our roles of parent and child sometimes reversed. Since I learned English much faster than they did, I often became my parents' guide, the translator, the one who figured things out. I helped my parents open bank accounts and ask for things at the pharmacy. While teenagers often want to be their parents' equals, it's surreal when it actually happens. Many teenage immigrants say the same thing, when you become the guide, you feel as if you lose your protection. One day, a few months after we arrived, my mom made me a hot dog sandwich for lunch, using dark rye bread, somewhat like the dark bread we ate in Russia. When I unwrapped the sandwich in the school cafeteria, one of the kids at my table looked over curiously. Then he chuckled and called over a few of his friends. Don't you know what a hot dog bun is? One of them asked. No. I regretted unwrapping my sandwich. I regretted coming to America. I regretted being born. Soon, dozens of kids had formed a roaring circle of laughter around my lunch table. I guess it really was funny to see such a weird version of a hot dog sandwich. It took all my determination not to cry. But what made me feel that much worse was learning that my dad had had a similar experience at work that day. My mom had made him the same approximation of an American sandwich and his colleagues had also had a nice laugh at his expense. As he told us about it, he brushed it away with a smile. But I was angry at his colleagues, no one made fun of my brilliant father. I was angry at my classmates for humiliating me, but more than that, I was angry that my dad and I were being made fun of for the very same thing. Your parents should protect and guide you. Mine could do neither and that was lonely and scary. I tried to keep my anxiety inside as much as I could. Mostly I didn't want to burden my parents with my stuff because they had enough to worry about as they began to build our new lives from scratch. If I pretended that things were okay, it would make life easier for them, that is, until I could make everything okay for us. I was going to be the first real American in our family, and I'd pass along all those benefits and privileges just as soon as I could. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't some dream child, far from it like other teenagers, but with a certain Russian intensity and flair for drama, my confusion and turmoil sometimes boiled over. I had bouts of screaming, fighting, and door slamming. I went on a short-lived hunger strike and once ran out of the house and threw myself down on the sidewalk. My dad had to come pick me up, my parents tried to get me to talk to them. I still remember the pain worry in my mom's beautiful eyes as she sat on the edge of my bed asking me to tell her what was wrong, but I refused. My family had always been incredibly loving, but we didn't talk about difficult emotions much. Partly this was out of love, we wanted to protect each other from being burdened with our own suffering. We didn't admit to things for years, and sometimes not at all. 
The first time my father mentioned that he was scared when we lived in refugee settlements was just a few years ago when we were planning our 25th anniversary party of our arrival in America. And even then he made a joke about it. I had adopted the belief that the way to deal with something bad was to move past it. You fall down, you get up and keep going. This fighter spirit is one I cherish. It helped us overcome the obstacles we faced to build a new life in America, and it's my trusted ally for getting through challenges even now. But just because you fight through your difficult feelings doesn't mean you don't feel them or that they go away. Mine had piled up into a big dark heap, one that I was now, for the first time, starting to experience rather than run from. What do you Google to heal your soul? A few months after I met Janet I began to attempt to be with the pain that I tried to cover up with achievements, to feel it and try to heal it. This idea was scary for three reasons. It felt very much like the cop-out of someone who couldn't handle real life. It meant that I had to shift my priorities from work and family to myself, something I'd never done in my life. Also, doing this only reinforced point one. I didn't feel that I deserved to do it and the guilt of doing something I didn't feel I had earned was brutal. Even as I fought this idea, or as my ego fought this idea, I knew it was the only way to begin to climb out of this darkness that had consumed me for the past year and endangered everything that was dear to me, including my family and my company. So how do you heal your soul? At first I thought, I'll Google it. It sounds crazy to me now. Why would Google know but not Janet? The truth is, Janet rarely told me what to do. She created a space in which I could stop trying so hard and then, inevitably, ideas about what I wanted to do came to me. So after a few months inching toward concepts I had naturally rejected up to that point, such as soul or spirituality, I came home and googled top books about spirituality. One of the books that came up was Be Here Now by Ram Das. It seemed totally weird and woo-woo. I kept thinking. I've definitely lost it. The book was thick, square, and printed on newsprint with hand drawings and handwritten passages such as, it's only when caterpillarness is done that one becomes a butterfly. That again is part of this paradox. You cannot trip away caterpillarness. The whole trip occurs in an unfolding process of which we have no control. What? But I was impressed by Ram Das's bio. He was no lightweight hippie. In fact, he had been Richard Alpert a successful psychology professor at Harvard, with many degrees from top universities including a master's from Wesleyan, my alma mater. He was the son of very successful Jewish parents, his father had been one of the founders of Brandeis University. When academics failed to give him a deep enough understanding of the meaning of life, he experimented, as many people did in the 1970s, with psychedelics. Then he went to India where he studied for 10 years with a guru. When he returned to the United States as Ram Das, he became a prominent spiritual leader. Even though he had a major stroke in the late 1990s, he still teaches today. Ram Das came from a place I could understand. That helped me pause my judgment long enough to trust his words. If he quit all that to devote his life to spiritual practice and meditation, surely I could spend an hour a day on healing my soul, as I began to call it. Toward the end of Be Here Now there is a short manual for how to start on a yogic or spiritual path, including suggestions for yoga postures, breathing practices, and meditation. 
I had been going to yoga classes for a few years, but mostly to get a physical reset and a break from the hectic tempo of my daily life. My experience with meditation was limited to the few minutes when our yoga teachers would ask us to sit and focus on our breathing. And it was never very successful. My mind would usually go into a spiral of thoughts ranging from obsessing about my to-do list to judging myself for fidgeting. But it seemed as if every day new research proclaimed the benefits of meditation, so I decided to give it a try. My daily anchors, I committed to doing three things every day. Meditate for 20 minutes. Go to yoga and pay attention to the non-physical teachings in the class. Or read a few pages from the large pile of books about spirituality, kindness, meaning, and self-compassion that I was quickly accumulating. Continue my gratitude practice, including having one positive and kind interaction with another person each day. I call these my daily anchors. As we explore different happier practices in part 2, I am going to ask you to create your own daily anchors. Every morning I would write them at the top of my to-do list. After a few weeks I added two other ones, do something nice for me and be here now, be present with myself exactly as I was. Janet had been talking about me being kinder to myself, so while I still thought I hadn't earned that yet, putting it on my to-do list made it a little more real. And while it was still scary to me, I wanted to try to be with my thoughts and feelings, even for short moments, rather than do what I had always done, run away, escape and distract myself. That was the idea behind be care. Now, which I often used as a reminder, literally saying those words to myself when I caught my mind trying to escape the present moment. Practice, be care. Now, we'll explore strategies for handling difficult emotions in chapter 6, but here is a first step you can take now. It's simple and yet profound at the same time. The next time you feel something you don't want to feel, whether it's stress, regret, anxiety, sadness, or something else, try to stay with that feeling for a little bit, even if for just a minute. Say to yourself, be here now. Use these words to help yourself remain with the feeling rather than distracting yourself or otherwise shutting it down. Notice yourself looking for an immediate way to escape it, and decide to do something different. Notice how you feel. You may discover that as you do this, you come to fear this feeling a bit less or experience it with less intensity. I told Janet about my new daily practice. Months later she told me that the only way I was able to get through this dark and difficult period in my life, a spiritual crisis, as she called it, was because of my discipline and tenacity to stick with practicing my daily anchors. Where you are today compared to where you were, well, that's a miracle she said. But miracles aren't passive. They aren't magic. A true miracle takes work and practice and some faith. You didn't have much faith at first, but you were extremely tenacious and dedicated to doing the work. And you didn't give up. At the beginning, my faith was in you, I told her, smiling. I didn't need to tell Janet just how much she had helped me, she could see it, but it felt so good to do it. Then I took out a small piece of paper and wrote down, Miracle equals faith plus practice, while faith and miracle were new to my vocabulary and still a little uncomfortable, practice had long been something I could get behind. I was learning. And that is what my daily anchors became, my daily practice to find my path out of what felt like complete inner darkness. 
I kept notes about my daily anchors practice in a journal on my computer. Reading through it while writing this book was like meeting an old friend I hadn't seen in a long time. It was really painful, but I also felt so proud of how far I've come. It truly seemed like a miracle that the scared, desperate person who wrote those words could be here now as someone who feels more peaceful, hopeful, joyful, and present with all the parts of her life. But I also wished I could run back and hug that version of me and tell her to go a little easier on herself. My journal day one, this feels like the end. End of my life, end of something. Why does it feel this way? It is awful. Day 9, maybe I'll go into the woods and meditate for the rest of my life, like Michael Singer in the surrender experiment. Wait, I can't do that, I have a kid and a mortgage. Also, I can't meditate. Day 15, opened my eyes this morning and it was like this insane tsunami of anxiety, this feeling of I can't take another morning like this. Went downstairs to try to meditate. Total failure. But at least I sat there. Day 22, it is exhausting how I talk to myself all the time. Like, a constant pep talk. Be here now. It's okay to be how you are. You deserve to be kind to yourself. You don't need to achieve more, you're enough. It's okay to feel like everything is a mess. It helps, but my god, how long will I have to do this? Day 26, I'm at the summit conference in Utah. It's like a completely different world. Everyone here uses the word soul. Yet they are also smart and creative and successful. What? On a hike, talking to this guy Adam about dealing with my storms, and how I'm doing things I never thought I would, like meditation, etc. Testing whether I could be honest. He didn't even blink, he just told me about some of his challenges. It's so totally new to me to actually have these honest conversations. Day 29 clearly have lost my mind because today I had an astrology reading. And, get this, she said, it's like you're trying to prove your worth. And you think, okay, I'm making this long list of things that prove my worth until God notices me. And then you realize it's all a cosmic joke. There is no God. You are it. You decide. There is no one to check your list, no one to prove your worth to. How could she know this? Day 34 30 days of sitting down to meditate every morning. It's literally like an anchor, keeps me grounded even when I can't calm my thoughts. I am someone WHO meditates. Day 40, in the meditation workshop today the teacher quoted someone whose name I forget but I love the saying, the purpose of meditation is not to feel a certain way, it is to feel how you feel. This. Except holy crap I don't always want to know how I feel. Day 53. I feel like a child learning to listen to myself. Feels dumb. Feels like something I I feel like a child learning to listen to myself. Feels dumb. Feels like something I should have learned to do way earlier in life. But omfg the voice in my head is so mean. Day 57. Saw Ken for lunch today. He said I seemed different, lighter, less intense. In a good way. I wrote a talk today in an hour and it feels like the best talk I've ever written and more honest. Is this what Janet means when she says once I move from my true self the work will flow differently? Day 60, craziest thing, today was a rough day and yet I feel okay. Not great, but okay. Had stressful meetings and didn't love yoga class, then a wee and I had a tough convo and I yelled at Mia, for which I hated myself. But this is the crazy part, I feel okay.
Right now, in this moment, I am okay even though this day sucked. There it is, day 60. When I wrote this entry I hadn't yet realized just how huge this insight was. I was basically okay even when things sucked. It would take many more months of doing my daily anchors for them to feel natural to me. Months of fighting with my ego, which, of course, was still screaming at me for being a cop-out, and learning how to be with my feelings instead of trying to escape them. But I was learning to allow myself to feel grateful for some moments in my day and accept that there would be other moments when I felt sad, confused, scared, or upset. To not feel like a failure when I couldn't make everything work out the way I felt it should, and to allow for the possibility that some things were outside my control. To treat myself with a bit of compassion when I didn't feel how I thought I should feel or when the voice in my head was stuck in a negative spin that I couldn't turn around. The other revelation was that my life had not, and would not, become some amazing dream just because I'd achieved something that meant the world to me, like launching happier, or learning how to be more present in the moment. The challenges I was facing at work and home were still there with all their complexity and difficulty. I didn't have clear solutions or ideas for how to make every single thing better. But I learned to embrace more of my life as it was. And to my total amazement, the very act of learning that I could be okay even when things were not okay, or not as I thought they should be, brought me the contentment that I had been chasing feverishly for more than two decades. Learning to be happier now, about a year after I started my journey through the darkness I began to feel that this new way of living, treating myself with more compassion, not always fighting my reality and my emotions, not feeling as if I constantly had to earn the right to feel good by achieving the next amazing milestone, was my new reality. I no longer considered it an escape or a resignation from real life. I felt as if I had moved from gingerly walking on a swaying tightrope to stepping more confidently along a wider, more forgiving path. My daily anchors ceased to feel like a temporary life jacket to get me out of a crisis and more like a non-negotiable, regular part of my day. I felt more comfortable with myself and more present in my life, with Mia, a we, our family, and friends. A we and I hadn't magically fixed our marriage but we were starting to melt the thick layer of ice we'd let form between us. We had hope, just like I had fresh new hope for happier and for myself. There were still many storms in my life, but I was more okay within them than I had ever been. I had discovered a skill that I'd been missing all these years. It wasn't just gratitude, which is still hugely important and which I still practice as one of my core daily anchors because science doesn't lie, it works. I had discovered the ability without which we can't experience the genuine, lasting, deep sense of happiness or live fully and be present in all the moments of our lives. I had discovered the importance of learning how be okay even when not everything was okay. I know from the thousands of happier emails, messages, and conversations that many of us struggle to reach an impossible state of perfect happiness, hoping that one more achievement or the next important milestone will be the one that delivers the gold. As we hang our hopes of feeling happy somewhere out there in the future, we often rob ourselves of the little moments of connection, enjoyment, and beauty that are already here, within our days. We don't pause enough to truly be present for them because we approach them as simply a means to an end, stepping stones on our way to our future goal. Even when we do notice them, 
they often pale in comparison to this place of perfect happiness that we believe awaits us in the future if we work hard enough to get there, if we make everything in our lives just so, if we clear the obstacles in our way. By relaxing our impossibly high expectations of reaching peak happiness, void of challenges or difficult emotions, we give ourselves permission to experience the joy, kindness, meaning, and contentment in the everyday moments of our lives. When we become present to them, we honor them, and, in turn, they fill us with many of the same emotions we'd been hoping to feel once we reached our happiness goal. We begin to struggle less with our feelings and ourselves because we no longer feel the pressure to turn our negative emotions into positive ones. Not only do we learn that it's not always possible but also that it's not the goal, because being happier doesn't mean always feeling positive. Rather, genuine and lasting happiness comes from embracing the rich emotional fabric of our real lives, including the many difficult emotions that we might want to avoid, and learning from, growing, and thriving because of it. Of course it feels awesome to experience joy, fun, or excitement. But it also feels awesome to work toward a meaningful goal, even if we have to encounter tons of stress and disappointment in the process. It feels awesome to feel strong and resilient after working through a difficult situation rather than trying to escape from it because we fear the emotions it brings up. It sounds strange, but in our efforts to not experience negative emotions we miss out on feeling happier. Allowing ourselves to feel the potential stress and fear of a challenging situation and then getting through it brings us great satisfaction and even pride. The joy is in the doing, in the striving, in the effort, in connecting to our inner strength and a sense of meaning that helps us get through life's small and big storms. Genuine happiness isn't limited to pleasant feelings. It's deeper and more encompassing of our complex and beautiful humanity. Giving up the expectation that we can achieve our way to perfect happiness and broadening our definition of being happier to include not just feeling good but also working through something difficult is incredibly liberating. We can stop running breathlessly ahead, doing more and more and more in hopes of reaching our happiness nirvana. We can stop beating ourselves up for not doing things well enough. We can stop fearing that something bad will happen, and instead savor the good that we have. We can give ourselves the amazing gift of feeling happier now, where we are and how we are, even when not everything is perfect, which is always. Journal practice, I'm happier now because, revisit your I'll be happy when, list you made in chapter 1. I have no doubt that everything on that list is meaningful to you. But rather than waiting until you reach those milestones or achieve those accomplishments to feel happy, could you practice finding a few things in your life as it is right now that truly make you happier? Take a few minutes to jot them down in your journal. Begin each one with I'm happier now because, it's wonderful to have goals and dreams. In fact, it's so much of what makes us human. But I offer this practice as a way to help you increase your awareness of the moments, experiences, and human connections that bring you joy and meaning. As we will explore together in the coming chapters, doing this doesn't make it less likely that we achieve our goals, quite the opposite. It boosts our ability to achieve our goals and overcome the challenges along the way.